Hi there, coaches, and welcome to another episode of the ITA College Towns Coaches Podcast. I am your host, Dave Mullins. Today, I interview my successor at the University of Oklahoma, Audra Cohen. Audra is no stranger to winning. In her freshman year at Northwestern, she won an astounding 51 singles matches. The following year, she won an NCAA singles title at the University of Miami. She reached a career high of number 229 on the WTA Tour before joining the college coaching ranks as an assistant coach at the University of Wisconsin. She took over the head coaching responsibilities at North Florida in 2011, where she was named a three-time Atlantic Sun Coach of the Year, winning four Atlantic Sun tournament titles. Audra was hired as the head coach at OU in 2016 and is having a breakout year, reaching the finals of the ITA National Indoor Championships in February and winning a Big 12 regular season title just a couple of weeks ago. Her team will enter the NCAA tournament later this month as one of the favorites to win it all. In this podcast, Audra shares many aspects of her coaching philosophy and processes for recruiting, doubles play, and sports psychology, as well as her role as the CEO of the OU Women's Tennis Program. I hope you guys learn as much as I did from Audra throughout this conversation. Audra Cohen, welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. Yeah, no, this is this is going to be great. I uh, left University of Oklahoma in 2016 and you took over and have been taking that program to a whole new level and was a lot of fun to watch your team a few weeks ago out in Wisconsin. And congratulations on an amazing run and, and just got pipped at the line there, but lots to play for, Big 12 championships, NCAA titles, things like that. So best of luck the rest of the season. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been, it's been fun. It's been a journey. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it has. And we're going to get into that journey a little bit. So I'm going to take you back to your, your college playing days, and I'll reference that from time to time. But you played for Claire Pollard at Northwestern, then Paige at Miami, and we could argue two of the best women coaches in the industry right now, maybe ever. Both are tough, no-nonsense coaches. I think you have a, a similar style. What is it that attracted you to play for them? You know, I think I grew up with a pretty tough mom in my life and, and she really shaped kind of how we, uh, I have a sister, so she shaped really how we looked at life and we didn't look at it as if you have to be a man or a woman in order to be led by that person. And, and I think that's a, a good fundamental thing that I grew up with in life. And I didn't really even realize that I was looking at two places that had female head coaches. I just looked at it like, okay, who can help me the most to achieve my goals? And, and at that time, you know, Claire had done such a good job at Northwestern and, uh, and she had a really high tennis IQ that I think really attracted me because I, I needed that in order to be successful. And then I had a big back injury and I really kind of went home and then Paige ended up really helping me a lot to, to become more disciplined and tough in a very different way, I think, than Claire. So but both were, were tough women, which is what I was raised with. And I think that really attracted me to, to both places. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit more about that and the recruiting process in, in a couple of minutes. But are there some things that you learn from both Paige and Claire that you apply to your own program or how you operate as a college coach? Yeah, I think one of the, the big things is just communication like the, the different styles of communication and understanding that not every student athlete is going to respond the same to, to a certain communication style. And so you have to adapt and be flexible at times because, and, and unfortunately as a player, sometimes you look at that as this, as it's inconsistent, 
but it's not. It's actually consistently the same message. It's just the way that it's delivered might need to be adjusted so that each student athlete can can handle it in in the best way so that they can be impacted in the best way to follow the philosophy of the program. But I think the one thing I learned is always stay true to your philosophy of your program, regardless of how you have to communicate that. It, you, if your message is always the same, then your consistency stays the same. And that really helps to keep the whole team on board and to make sure you have a great season each year and year after year. So I think both do a great job with that is that they're, they're not, even if the communication style changes, the overall message is very consistent and you're always going to get the same like message from Paige, the same message from Claire about what they really identify with philosophically. And would you be willing to share some of your own philosophy? Yeah, I think resilience is number one part of our philosophy here is just building more resilient women that are prepared for life. I think a lot of the challenges that are ahead in life, both as a tennis player and as a female leader in society, are we're not really aware of them in youth because in youth, everything is equal. Everything is, you know, you get Title IX, you get, you get a big scholarship, you get all these great things, but then you get into the working world and it's a little bit harder to work your way up in leadership position or to have equal pay. And a lot of the challenges I think that are ahead for women, for young women now, they don't really realize until they're quite a bit older and in your thirties and you've already surpassed that time frame where you could really defeat some of those, uh, of those maybe injustices in a way, not to be a super feminist here, but, but I do think like uh, there's a lack of awareness on that because of how much we get scholarship wise in, in college tennis. And then you get into the real world and you think you're entitled to all these things and you're not. And, and so I think the resilience of dealing with that real world and being really gritty and going after and being willing to get rejected in your face at times and then keep battling. I think that's what we really teach a lot of here. And that was my style as a player. And with that resilience, I think our second caveat is really team over self. And that's been a big message for our program this year is like making sure that when you think about your team and you're not consumed with yourself, you actually play better tennis. And in life, it's pretty similar. It's like when you can remove yourself from the overall, how you view something, then you're going to be able to have a more objective view on it. And you're going to be able to apply more resilience and more thoughtfulness to what you're trying to accomplish. So that's something we've talked about a lot. And I think philosophically, they don't resilience and team over self don't match really. But when you really think about it, you have to have resilience to do team over self. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Thanks for sharing that. And it sounds like during the recruiting process, you had a very open mind. You weren't looking at gender. But my experience is that a lot of young women, actually, because they're coached by men during their junior careers, they've made up their mind that they want to be coached by a man in, in college. And even when I was back in Ireland and helping a few folks with that process, I'd always like, whoa, you know, they'd say, oh, well, I don't want to go there because there's a woman coach and I'm coached by a man and I want a man. And, and it, it took me aback. I didn't realize what an advantage I had during my, my career as a college coach until I was on the other side of it a little bit. And so how do you get or how do you help these junior players broaden their mind about the recruiting process, even, you know, coming to say Oklahoma, it's not the most fancy state yeah. in the country, yeah. shall we say. And, and so you're broadening their mind to obviously be coached by, by a woman and right. also come to maybe a state that isn't as fancy as something on the coasts. 
Yeah. I'll, I'll say a couple of things here. One is that I can usually tell right away if they're ever going to respect a female. And if I get the vibe that they're never going to, then we actually just pass right away. And the reason is that that's such a hard line to break down for, for that particular student athlete. And it will take years to do that. And so in that circumstance, I'll probably pass if it's really, I can tell right away. But I would say breaking down that barrier is, is something I think that society has done a much better job of. So we're seeing more student athletes nowadays that are more recruits that are, that are more open from the start and more open to having a female leader and some actually seek it. So I would say instead of trying to change their mind and get them more open to it the whole time, we're looking for somebody who's already slightly open to it. So so that they are prepared to then become even more open to it when they when they are here. But that respect factor right away in the initial part of the recruiting process is I'm very keen on looking for that, whether it's there or not. And if it's not, it's it's no problem to pass because that's not going to be effective in the long run either way. And, and what are some of those clues that you might be looking for that will tip that off to you? It's like such small nuances, I think. It, it could be whether their relationship with when they're explaining their relationship with their current coach or or whom the like when you ask them who's your who's your biggest mentor in your life or who's really impacted you the most and if it's typically the more of the male figure in their in their life or you know it's it's not one word or something they say I think it's just a vibe that you get overall of whether or not they're going to be listening I think a lot of times they're also they sound like they're shopping when they're in the recruiting pro- recruiting process rather than actually really learning and listening and, and understanding what the message is. Because in the end of the day, we're all selling more or less the same thing. So we don't want that same thing to be why you're coming to OU. We want you to come here because you, this is where you want to come to grow and we've got to be able to push you to do it. So if we can't push you, then it's probably not the place for you. Right. And so going back to kind of your the start of the career, we talked a little bit about your, your playing career, and we'll talk more about that in, in a little bit also. But you started your, your coaching career as the assistant at Wisconsin. And a lot of, I think, players with your playing resume, which was off the charts, they're on a fast track to a Power 5 position. Maybe they start as a volunteer at a P5 assistant and within two maybe three years they're now a head coach at a p5 and you took a a slightly different road you started as assistant a couple of years at wisconsin but then you had an opportunity to be the head coach at university of north florida and uh, how do you think maybe that experience provides you an edge now over your competition with all the resources that you're provided at at a place like ou yeah i think that's it's a huge edge at least and I'm speaking from a personal standpoint because it's not something that I, I don't think it's an edge for each program. I think it's more of an edge from a personal standpoint of being a head coach. Mm-hmm. And if you are able to do it at a place like North Florida, where you're building a program that's nationally ranked and getting into the NCAA tournament, and you have half the number of scholarships that the rest of the schools have, and your admissions is extremely tough, and your operating budget, I just to give a, a kind of a light into exactly how different the resources are. Our operating budget at North Florida, the entire operating budget was half of our Nike alone allotment at Oakland. <laughs> so if you really think about it, I mean, we had to do so many things to just survive and keep that program winning and, and credit to those that have 
have replaced myself as the head coach there if they've done a phenomenal job. And I hope that the resources have improved there over time. But I think the fact that I was able to experience that much success at North Florida the first year I got, when I got there, we had, we had four players and no money to recruit with and uh, somehow scrapped a, a couple of players from Brazil actually to come over and they ended up being pretty good. We win a conference championship for the first time. And then boom, you're in the NCAA tournament. And from there, it was like, uh, just, uh, it was amazing to be a part of such a grateful program that, that every day came in and they had almost nothing to lose because we knew we had fewer resources. So to be able to build that and that chip that it put on my shoulder, at least as a head coach going into Oklahoma was uh, phenomenal. And I, I would give that advice to any young head coach or excuse me, young coach trying to get into the industry that don't be afraid of the mid-major level. I think that's where you really learn the nuts and bolts. You are, you have to, you have to wear every hat as an assistant, even at a mid-major. And that's something I think that is a lost art because then you, if you started a power five and you have all the resources and you have all these pieces in place, then you go and get a head coaching job at a power five and you don't know how to manage a lot of the pieces because you've never done it before. So, and you've done maybe a couple of things in your best lane. You haven't had to do things outside of your best lane. And, and that's where I, I think being at, at coming from North Florida is a huge edge in that regard. Yeah, it's always a, a, a tough one, right, for young coaches coming through the ranks as they try and figure out the next best steps. Because even with speaking with administrators, sometimes even when I was speaking with administrators at OU about hiring you, you know, there's there's this kind of, oh, well, they haven't really proved themselves at this level. And I'm like wanting to bang my head against the wall. Like, no, look at these individual. Look, they're maximizing the program. You give them these resources here and they're going to maximize those resources and get you to where you want to go. But it's um, I think in terms of learning, there's no better experience. It's just maybe you're spending a little a few more years there and maybe that's not a bad thing. But when you get to that opportunity, now you're taking full advantage of it and those rewards will come eventually. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the it's like you get this hand of cards and you this is this is your maximum hand of cards that you get. And you've got to play your best game with this hand of cards that you have. And it's it's really who's making the most out of that hand of cards. That's that's I think the the coaches, at least that I respect the most within the industry. And I, I feel like that's been a big part of my career and my pathway is just making sure that hey, you've got these these things that you can control here and do the be absolute best you can with them and figure it out and be strategic and build great relationships so you can maximize each one of those cards. And that's something that we've done here. We've done it at North Florida as well. So, Yeah. Yeah, so going back to when you were going through this process with OU and we, we chatted a couple of times and you were actually thinking about making a move into sports psychology. You were kind of figuring out your future. Do you want to stay with college coaching? And fortunately for OU, you decided to stay with college coaching. But what really spurred your interest in the world of sports psychology? And, and where did that interest and love and passion for that world come from? I think knowing, knowing myself enough as a player that mental toughness was really a huge, huge part of my success. And I, I think at times working with, with players, I wanted to just take my brain and like put it on them because they had a lot more ability than I had as a player, but I just had this resilience piece and a, a couple of like that mental edge and 
um, finding a way to teach that. I think it, that's, that's always been the goal, right? So like our philosophy as a program is resilience. So, I mean, that's always been my goal in coaching is trying to help players who are honestly far more talented than I ever was. I mean, I couldn't even hit a backhand for a long time. So, uh, and won so many matches doing so. And and I think the, the part of that, that's the most interesting is how do you teach that? How do you, how do you transmit that and, and get that message across and how can they practice it? And so that was the main interest that I had in the world of sports psychology. And to be honest, I'm, I'm happy that I, I stayed in coaching and was able to continue that work. I ended up doing my master's online. Actually, I finished it in my first year at, at Oklahoma. I finished it. Uh, actually, my second year, I finally finished it. I took a couple of classes at a time over a long period of time and finally finished it. And really thankful to all the things I learned and the balance that that created as well in my first year here yeah so how how do you intentionally going about working on your players resilience both you yeah. talked about on and off the court is there some things that you're doing that habits you're building into practice or before matches or on a daily weekly monthly basis how, how do you go about that yeah well lucky enough i married our volunteer assistant now so and she has a master's in sports psych as well and so we have an actual sports psych program that is built into our program. We have, we practice it every single day from body language to time between points. We break down film. A lot of coaches will break down film and they'll look at what shot selection you made. We break it down and cut out the point and are only looking at between oh. points and between serves, timing, the time that it takes between first and second serve when you're winning, first and second serve when you're losing. And so we really break it down to actual practices and actual physical movements that will be able to transform the way you're thinking within a match. So things like never standing still, always, if you're, if you're standing still, just waiting for the, the server, you're jumping around, you're getting your energy flowing. And, and we hold the, the student athletes accountable to it every single day, every practice. Um, we've worked with, we have a, an area at, at OU called Pros Psychological Resources. And when I first got here, Dave, you could probably speak to this. It was more of like a, a lot of therapy where they can sit on the sofa and cry on the shoulder of a therapist. And, and so we actually changed the way that that looks. Like, so we made our pros department. We have JJ who works within pros and he's been phenomenal. And he's done a lot of the stats and things like that for us and really made it more of a sport oriented, trying to get better, a performance-based resource for us. And, and yeah, it's still, you, it, it ends up being both. Mm -hmm. You end up, if you go see JJ, you're going to be able to have that sport performance piece of it, but also be able to talk about some of the things that maybe you can't talk about with your teammates or your friends or your, or your coaches. So it ends up being a really safe space for both things to happen. And I think that's been a really healthy part of our program is building that sports psych program within our day-to-day -day work, as well as partnering with somebody who's, with JJ, who's in the pros department. So it's a, he, he's traveled with us a few times and it's just a great resource to have around. Mm -hmm. And during the national indoor championships, somebody may have told me this, but you know, the teams, let's say you were playing at five o'clock, a lot of other teams would come at 12 o'clock and hit a few balls and then go get lunch. I, and I could be wrong, Audrey, I, I don't think you did that. I, I, am I to understand that maybe you had your team visualizing during that time and, and 
taking that time rather than being on the practice court, they were visualizing right. about that match or preparing for the match. Can you talk a little bit about that? We did one. We did hit around. We went to a club nearby. Okay. It was uh, thankfully I was the former assistant at Wisconsin, so I was able to uh, remember a couple of the clubs nearby that we would that we that I knew of. So we did hit, but but we do imagery before every match. And uh, we do it either well before. So if it's a 5 p.m. match, we'll do it the, before the hit in the morning. And then if, you're, if we play at like a noon or a three, we'll do imagery the night before. So, yeah, we do. And we talk about things like the juice point at the deciding match and in that imagery. And because it's really if you don't if you can't see yourself doing it and you don't visualize it, then it's then how are you going to do it? It's, we want to be as prepared as possible. So you get into that moment and and you've already seen yourself do that work. And one of our big sayings has been, it's, it's always coming down to you. And I never tell the team if we're playing clinch or not clinch, uh, other than other than the, the tournament uh, there at indoors, obviously they know it's clinch. But uh, so everybody goes into a, my, a, every match thinking in doubles and singles, it's coming down to me, it's coming down to my court. And that's something I think we started to talk about a lot, quite a bit last year after we had a couple of bad, fourth, not bad, but tough four, three losses. And so we just started talking about it's coming down to you every match. And they've really bought into that. And the imagery has been really phenomenal. We credit to Cobra on that one. She writes it. I mean, we stress about it. We're going over it just now because we have a match later today. So we're just we always want to make it even better every time. So over the course of the season, it gets it improves quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So can you take us through that process a little bit, Audra? So you've got a match today against Kansas at five o'clock. So I think coaches are always interested in what, what are other teams doing the day of a match. So can you walk us through what your <clears throat> team will be doing today other than a few classes this morning? You're going to take away, you're going to give away all of our secrets, Dave. Oh, you don't have to share them. You don't have to share them. Maybe just some high level <laughs> overview. 1130, they will hit. Well, we have them all come to the tennis club to hit, but at 1130, we'll do imagery in the locker room on mats and it'll take about 20 minutes at the most. And then they start hitting some balls right after that. So that whole session is an hour. They always know they have imagery before. So we don't even, I mean, it's on the schedule, but it's like 1130 at the tennis club for one hour. And then they'll, they can shower, do it, go to class, do, do their thing. And then we'll eat lunch at two 30 and then start hitting balls at four. Uh, I'm not a big fan of starting warm up too, too early. And just because it, you just keep going and going, I feel like the, it's just like you're coming up with new things to do and that's not really necessary. And the, you want the energy to be really high during the match. So we'll, we'll start hitting balls probably around 4.15 with warm up starting at like four. So we'll do shoulder re at like bands and then the ladder and those things. And then uh, starting balls around 4.15 and, and be ready to go right at that five o'clock time. Got it. Thank you for sharing that. And then are there other resources in this world, whether it's through your masters or books you've read or courses you've gone to or taken online? Is there anything that you think would be helpful for coaches to consume? I think leadership training is probably a big, it's, it's not probably, it is a big part of our program. So we do leadership training with some of our leaders on the team and it's we read a book and go chapter by chapter in a book that I actually had in my master's and it's just a basic like really simple way but it's a sports driven book with uh, each chapter is 
advancing you as a leader and where the ultimate leader at the end is able to hold their teammates super accountable. And I think that's something that we've seen a, a huge evolution with Ivana on our team, Ivana Corley. She's really done a great job of buying into that process and and being able to fulfill that leadership role and, and improve at it each year. But it definitely takes training. And I think that's something we don't really recognize is that, yeah, you're going to have your natural leaders on a team, but if you don't teach them how to be leaders, they're going to lead most likely the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And we blame them often as coaches. And I, I will admit, I did that quite a bit in my, in, throughout my years. And, and now that I've learned so much more about leadership and about how to develop leaders, that's, that's what they need. And they're actually super open to it. I think that's something we forget is that they're, they want to be able to have, they want to be better leaders. They want to be effective as leaders, but they just don't know how, and we have to teach them. Mm -hmm. And taking that time to teach is far more important. I mean, if you replace all that time to teach with all the, all the time, we probably complain about <laughs> poor <laughs> leaders on the team. I think that we got to hold ourselves accountable to something too, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and so you talked a little bit earlier about, you know, you as a player and uh, I was at Northwestern coaching. I missed you by a year, but, but you were, uh, you know, obviously at Miami and we, we, I think played a couple of times, but I would often see you at national indoors or NCA. And I, I argue you were the best college player of that era. I mean, you were so fun to watch, so athletic and incredible competitor. Yeah. I don't think I, I ever wanted any of our players to have to play <laughs> against you because I knew what the result would be, but you know, for some players of your level, then coaching at college, that could be really frustrating. Like you said, you just want to put your head on this player who's maybe more talented than you, you know, in terms of stroke production or timing or whatever it is. But so how have you maybe <laughs> found a way to not get frustrated yeah. with that, but also use the tools that you developed as a, as a player? Like how is your playing experience, your playing prowess being an advantage to you as a college coach? I think it's a for me personally, it's a huge advantage. And the reason is that I didn't play one style. I played, a, I could play quite a few styles and I really relied on understanding my opponent. And so, and understanding what I could do as a player and what I couldn't do. So like, for example, I didn't want to be in a backhand cross rally all day. So I knew if I could slice line and earn a forehand, I was going to be better. So I really developed like those skills. So I think from a figuring out what you can do. So I, I think that helps a lot. So if I can put myself in literally inside of what a player can do or can't do and understand their game and know them well enough to know that when I'm telling, asking for something from them, from a coaching standpoint, it's always going to be asking something that they can execute and that they, they can execute with confidence mm -hmm. and believe in themselves while they're doing it. So I think that's been the most helpful part is really just understanding how to beat the opponent and break down the opponent and understanding how to only ask what a player is capable of doing and knows they're capable of doing, especially in during the match situation. So coaching them on court during a match. So I would say, I don't know if, if my actual playing helps too much, but just understanding the game and understanding it at a very high level, but also understanding it from an opponent's perspective and how an opponent feels, because that's really how I won a lot of matches is I would just break down the opponent and bring a lot of energy to do it. And it was fun, I'm sure. And, 
athletic. I don't remember so much anymore. Like it's like I look back and I'm like, gosh, I didn't even know, remember when I was good. <laughs> it seems like I've been coaching for so long now. But um, but I would say that's the bit, those are the two biggest things, understanding the opponent and understanding our student athlete and who we have and what they can do. Yeah. So our mutual friend, uh, Donna Johnson, who runs the OU Tennis Club facility there, uh, it was great to see her out in Wisconsin, but she referred to you as a great businesswoman and didn't talk about you being a great coach. Obviously, that goes without saying, but she referred to you first as a great businesswoman. So why is somebody like Donna referring to you as a businesswoman first and maybe coach second? And what things are you doing on a daily basis above the typical recruiting and coaching and preparing for a match? I think naturally, I think like a businesswoman first before I think like a coach. And that's probably the way that I was raised. I grew up around, my mom had a small business and our fa- it's a family, somewhat of a family business. My dad works there too. And I, in the art industry, and that's not an easy industry to be in. It's all subjective. And, mm. and I think I learned so many things at home growing up that I apply every day to my job now as a coach. And So the viewpoint that I always have is from a business perspective, because at the end of the day, athletic departments, whether they want to admit it or not, are businesses. And so if you're a sport that's not revenue producing, you really have to think about it more like you're a business person so that you can create more value and cost less for their bottom line, but still create more value. So if you think like that every day, as a strategist in that mentality, then you're able to maximize everything around you within your program. And, and people in your, within your program realize that they are, you're an expense. And if you realize that you're an expense and you're easily replaced, then you, can, then you can really be more impactful and understand that, look, like they don't need to have you here. Like <laughs> you've got to do above and beyond in order to create more value and get more people out to tennis matches, get more excitement at your tennis club. So a couple of things we've done, we have a junior program that runs all year round. We have a junior academy. We average between 30 to 50 kids a day coming from for junior programming after school. We have summer camps. Obviously we have adult clinics. We have a whole entire uh, just programming from top to bottom. And that's outside of just our just our tennis programs, men's and women's tennis. So I think the excitement we bring into the tennis club and the community that we get involved, that's all part of this. And that's where maybe we operate, I operate more like a CEO in that regard, but I think in just the mentality overall, getting Donna to think like that as well has been huge. And then, you know, we've done other things like run a pro tournament or ITF pro circuit event and running those is you got to raise all the money to get sponsors. You have to give them value in return and all of the expenses, every piece of it from a money standpoint has to be clean. You have to like the taxes. I mean, there's so many pieces to it that I think a lot of people don't understand that how much work goes into running one of the, one of those. And I'm sure, you know, after running indoors and so many events, but, but there are so many pieces to it. And if you don't take the time to, to operate like a business and everything you do, it's so much harder to make sure you're doing a great job day to day with all the things you want to do to make your program better. Yeah. And and how do you prioritize those things, Audra? Like, do you just, uh, have you become excellent at at delegating? Is it, you know, mapping out several months in advance and figuring out your busy times? Like how how do you make sure 
the work you're doing and kind of those business elements doesn't necessarily bleed into impacting, say, your relationship with one of the players or something like that? I would say delegating is something I've 100% improved on since I got to OU because, you know, at, at North Florida, you didn't have any staff really. So you kind of took on everything. And then my first couple of years at OU, I, I struggled with that was delegating and, and teaching the, the ability to lead certain things. So for example, uh, our pro tournament, you know, the first year I, I ran it with Donna Johnson. And then after that, she's now able, I mean, she could run one in her sleep now, like she's gotten so good at it. And so I think that's where also the development of the staff around me as I've, since I've been here has been extremely helpful in that. And then their ability to delegate has helped as well. So Donna is able to find her resources to run the tournament effectively. And then little things that we've included in order to make things like our junior program really successful without a lot of our day-to-day have to register the junior players online and do all those things. So We've actually set up a whole system on Square where it all like kind of operates itself. Mm-hmm. So that's been really, really helpful for, for us to become and keep that efficiency. And, and then I'm able to focus more on our program, our players, and, and really how we, can, how we can get better and use these things that we have in order to do it. Yeah. So switching gears again, we're covering a lot of ground here. Audra, I want to talk about doubles because your your doubles record over the last few years has just been insane. And and I I guess many of us would think with the current format, one set, no ad for division one, that you play an evenly matched team. Well, the the doubles is kind of a crapshoot and it's 50-50 and maybe a few lucky points here or there, but you're proving that wrong because you're pretty much winning every doubles point that that's out there for, for grabs. So are, do you think you're spending more time on doubles during practice? Is it a mindset that you've developed in players? Is it a certain style of play or a combination of things or, or something else? I don't even know. I wish I could answer this with a thorough answer that made sense, but I can, I, I will say my philosophy in doubles is definitely aggressive. I think that's like, we don't just play doubles from the first year that a student athletes within our program, we're not just going to play two back just to win a couple of matches at three doubles. And then you never develop over that time. So it's really aggressive from the beginning and then finding compatible partners and then sticking with that. So one of the things that we do is like, we'll, we'll find a compatible partner for two players and then and they will keep them even when they have a little lull in their performance over, say, the fall, they're playing together all fall. They have a couple of bad tournaments. We'll keep them together and keep working on it. Mm. Bring them in for individuals together and talk about how they can help each other more in doubles and then work through some of those lulls because ultimately every partnership's going to have a lull of results and performance. And if you don't work through it now, even if you change their partner, you're going to get to that point where maybe so-and-so can't hit a forehand return. So you're going to have to work on it and it can't just ruin everything else. Or, or maybe somebody's serve is breaking down a little bit. Like you've got to work, have the players work through it together before you change up who they're playing with and then start mixing and matching. And now yeah. you're re you're redeveloping over and over again. And yeah. that's something I think we've really stuck to is if you see, we have a lot of consistency within our doubles pairings. 
over the course of a season. And it's, we don't lose a devil's point and then regroup and change everything. And honestly, I will, I will say, and my, the staff uh, around me, like having Jose has been great. And, and Cobra, they are on me all the time. They're like, we haven't practiced doubles all week. And I'm like, <laughs> we we're good at doubles. Like sometimes not practicing too much actually helps if you, and then practice in an individual setting because every practice is an opportunity to re to gain confidence or lose confidence. And so if you practice some of the double skills in, in, in either an individual session, uh, like, or individual setting, what you want them to look for. So like positioning, if your server's partner and things like that, we talk about a lot of that, but we won't necessarily practice it with your partner the whole time. Mm -hmm. We'll practice that as a fundamental philosophy of doubles and then they'll play and we'll hold them accountable to some of the things they've learned when they are with their partner in, in practice. So I, I do think it's a, there's a balance of how much you can practice it, but also the balance is really the relationship between the partner and the, and the two players, like the relationship that they have. And so for example, the Corley sisters, if they play together too often, and say they lose a couple sets in practice or they're, they're not happy with their performance, they can break each other down easily. Mm. So if that's happening, we've got to talk about it. We have to talk because they like, you can't just keep going and not, not talking about it. It's like any relationship, right? You have to, you have to deal with those humps in, in the road and, and really get better through them. Mm. That's the biggest part that we focus on is working through them. Yeah, I think that's uh, amazing advice because, right, it's it's having that discipline, that patience to stay with the lulls. You're right. It's it's yeah. most people just, OK, it's not working. They've lost a couple of matches. Let's, yeah. let's switch it up. And, and you've had the discipline to stick with it. And it's obviously not a coincidence or luck that you're winning all these doubles points at this point. It's It's way beyond that. So obviously keep doing what you're doing and thank you for sharing some of those insights. I think coaches will really ponder that, you know, after listening to that. So again, we're going to jump, change gears again, uh, Audra, one, one, uh, final question before we get into our rapid fire round, just, you know, you're, you're, you are the next generation of coaches coming through, right. And, and, you know, it's important that your generation now has a say in terms of where are we going with the sport? How are we making it better? How are we raising the profile? And and you've got some progressive ideas. Some people might think they're wacky or way out there and oh my God, but we have to throw a lot of ideas out there and, and at least keep an, an open mind to it. And, and so would you be willing to share some ideas that you have around college tennis and how we can get more of the general college fan, sports fan, you know, involved in our sport or interested in our sport? Yeah. I think when you walk into a college tennis match, you need to easily know how one team can win and one team can lose. <laughs> and I think right now our format with doubles first, like you have to win two out of three doubles to get one point, And then you have to win three out of uh, six singles, unless you lost the doubles point. It's, it takes too long to explain to somebody who doesn't know anything about tennis or doesn't know much about uh, has never been to a tennis match. So I think we need to play a simultaneous format. I think we play doubles in the middle. You play five matches all together, doubles in the middle, two singles on each side of that doubles. Every match counts as one point and the first team to three points wins. So you play three out of five and it's five courts and energy in the middle with doubles. You have specialists because ultimately like if you're playing three doubles right now and 
it's two back on one side and the other side is struggling to make a serve in the box. Like even at this level, nobody wants to watch that. Like we, we want to highlight our best. And if we highlight our best and you can star, you can have star marquee players and you can make, you know, we recruit players and some players, maybe they're not as good when they get to college or they shine in doubles. Like you can make double specialists and have them be some of your marquee players. I think it helps to spread out the marketability of our sport. It helps to create more parity and entertainment. Every match matters a lot. Every match will feel really close. If you play five matches like that with with three being the three wins being the winner, every match is going to feel close and you won't have as much just waiting until the end. Or we have a lot of people who leave after the doubles point right now. I mean, getting rid of that, like doubles is the exciting part. You make the whole match as exciting as doubles and you're, you're really doing a great job for the sport. So that's mm-hmm. the goal is to create that much energy in one space and, and be less confusing for the average fan to come in. So I, I really challenge a lot of us as, as head coaches in stakeholder positions to, to reevaluate what it's going to take and what kind of dramatic change it's going to take to advance our sport. Because the one thing I hear a lot about is how little we make compared to maybe some other coaches within our, within our profession in other sports. And you know what, we haven't created that value to be able to make more as coaches. So if, if coaches, whether they're motivated by their pocket, whether they're motivated by the sport, whatever motivates them, we need to make dramatic changes in order to achieve those goals. And we can't sit around and complain about how things are until we've tried to change things. And we've really explored ways of changing and, and everybody was hesitant about no ad scoring and it's been successful, but let's now look even further than that to a format that is truly able to be on TV. And I think that's the last caveat here is like, we have to get on TV. Mm-hmm. TV changes everything. Being in national indoors and having watched that back a little bit, but, but our entire athletic department had it on the TVs in the athletic department. And the first thing I heard when I came back was like, gosh, you guys need to get better TV. You need to get better streaming because like they didn't even have Emma's court. They didn't even have the scores were wrong. We were so confused. I mean, all those things. And that's not by any fault other than us as coaches. Mm-hmm. I think we rely too much on, on Dave, on you and the ITA to come up with these resources, but it's, you guys are really a collection of us and as, as coaches, and we, we've got to step up and really see what the future is, is needing in order for us to do the most with our sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing that, Audra. And sorry, I'm keeping you you long here. I know you've got a, a match later today, but this has been great. We've covered so many different topics, but just getting into some rapid fire questions. What What's maybe the best piece of advice you received from anyone in your life? Doesn't have to be tennis related. Uh, you make the bed you lie in. So may, you make it comfortable. It'll be comfortable. If you make it messy, it's going to be messy, but ultimately you're responsible for for what happens. And that that's, I think, something we, we blame a lot in life. And that's not the way the world works. Nobody cares. You make it the way you want and you got to do the best you can. Yeah. Yeah. People love their, their Twitter and complaining on uh, these social <laughs> media platforms. We, uh, we hear it more than ever now, but is there a book, podcast, article, passage, poem that's influenced you in your journey today? I'd say one of the books that impacted me a lot was Confidence Code, actually. 
just talked a lot about the difference in confidence that females have versus males, just from a natural level, like that kind of nature versus nurture, right? So I think confidence is a choice. If you see it as a choice, it's something you can work on. But I think women are already behind on that mm -hmm. and they don't realize it. So, yeah. And are you reading anything right now that you'd recommend uh, or recently? Not at the exact moment. I've been watching a lot of Brett Ledbetter videos. Okay. What drives winning. Uh, he's been uh, pretty helpful. And then we, we do quite a bit of, it's called Five Voices here at OU. It's a gentleman named Kevin DeShazo, and he does some meetings and leadership stuff with, with OU Athletics. But Five Voices is like a personality test, and it's it's pretty cool. Like you have, I, I would suggest it, it, it. It's not your disc personality test. So it's a little bit more, I would say advanced than that. And it just shows you kind of how others operate, whether you're a nurturer or pioneer, or if you're a creative thinker or things like that. So you can kind of see more how you communicate. It's a, it's a good self-awareness tool, but also how to adapt to how others think. Mm. Okay. Awesome. I'll check that out for sure. Is there a drill that either you love to do as a player that you felt made you a better player or a drill you love to do with your team? I would say well, that's, that's a tricky one because I don't want to give away all of our secrets, but <laughs> team singles is probably our our most exciting. We keep score on, on three courts all together. So you're playing singles, but really it's a collective score. So imagine if a dual match was a collective score, every court count, counted towards you, towards your team. And and that's been pretty effective. It gets pretty heated if you do it right and if everybody's into it. And if you do some smack talking and anything goes, that's what we say. So if anything goes, that's it can get it can get exciting. So there's a number one team is trying to reach before the uh, other team? Yes. Gotcha. And every point on multiple courts counts. Gotcha. Okay. So. Very good. And so when the day comes for, for you to retire many decades from now, what do you hope to be most proud of when you look back on your coaching career? The young women that have come through our program and who they are in, in life, whether that's continuing as a tennis player or whether that as a mom, whether that's a person in the working world, like just the, the caliber of of female that that person has become is definitely the most important part of it. And I've been fortunate now I'm, I'm getting old enough where quite a few of uh, my graduates from Wisconsin and North Florida have now they're adults and they're, they're really successful and just watching that and seeing like all the lessons they learned along the way, whether they understood it at the moment or not, at least they're taking it into their lives now. And that's really what it's all about. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Audra, thank you for sharing some of your secrets today. Hopefully you didn't share, share too much with, uh, with the coaches, but please keep doing what you're doing. It's, it's an absolute joy for me to, to see the progress you've, you've made there at OU and looking forward to following your progress the rest of this semester and, and for many years to come. Yeah, thank, thank you, Dave. And I just want to say thank you for, for trusting me as you were looking at replacements for yourself at Oklahoma. I mean, everything you did here, like, a lot of the records we're breaking or things we're doing now are, are all yours. So that's something I, I think we've, we've really, we, we look at, up at those banners and a lot of the years of, you know, the Sweet 16, those things like that we're, we're fighting for is, is from your generation and your time at OU. So we're trying to continue that legacy and hopefully we can do something special here. 
Yeah, well, no, you're blowing right past it. It's it's awesome to see. And and look, every coach comes in, you want to take the, the program to another level. And I took it to a certain level before, you know, the previous coach and you're taking it to the next level. And then hopefully whoever follows you takes it even beyond that. But I think that's going to be be tricky because you're you're setting some very high marks. So, like I said, keep doing what you're doing and appreciate the, the kind words. Yeah. And shout out to Lily. Top 200. Yeah. I saw that yeah. Lily Miyazaki, we recruited her. I was fortunate to work with her for a couple of years, but um, yeah. huge shout out to her. She's done, doing phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, no, she's awesome. All right, Audra, good luck today with the Jayhawks. Yeah, see ya. Hi coaches, Danielle McNamara here, Director of Coach Education at the ITA. Thanks for listening to this podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it. Just a few quick announcements I wanted to make you aware of. We are two weeks left in the application period for the new coach education course, Coach Up. The application deadline is May 15th, and the course will begin on June 1st. If you're interested in learning more about the course or you want to apply, just head to the ITA website and click on the Coach Up icon. We also are offering a free three-day virtual workshop for all head coaches. It's in partnership with Coach Raise and it is on the fundamentals of fundraising. It will be held on June 7th, 8th, and 9th from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern, and coaches should be able to attend all three sessions if you want to register. Again, head to the ITA website for more information. Thanks a lot. Have a great day.